Welcome back to the Van Maren Show, everyone. Today we're going to be talking to Dr. Mark David Hall on Did America Have a Christian Founding to discuss what all the smashing of statues lately means, what people get wrong about the American founding, and how we should really understand America's heritage. That's coming right up. Stay with us. The million-dollar question for today, which happens to be your area of expertise, is did America have a Christian founding? It's the the title of one of your more recent books. And considering the the spate of statue smashing and things like that that we seem to be on at the moment, I was really hoping that you could explain to the listeners and viewers what the origins of America was, what our relationship to Christianity was. So starting with just the, the title of your book, Did America Have a Christian Founding? Yes, yeah, so that's the title of my book, as you point out, and I argue that absolutely it has the Christian founding. In the introduction, I explore what we might mean by this. We might mean that America's um, founders were Christians, and almost to a person, they would have identified themselves as Christians, about 98% Protestant, 2% Roman Catholic, and maybe about 1,200 Jews or so. Uh, but that's a very uninteresting qu- answer to that question. So I explore a couple of other possible answers, and I end up arguing that America's founders were influenced by Christian ideas or ideas developed within the Christian tradition of political reflection. And so when we look at our um, opposition to Great Britain, the formation of the constitutional order, we can see a a multitude of ways in which the founders drew from their Christian beliefs to create the constitutional order under which we live today. I do distinguish incidentally between America having a Christian founding and being founded as a Christian nation. I, right. I don't like that latter formulation because it sounds exclusive, as if it's a nation founded by and for Christians and others, or maybe, you know, maybe we'll put up with them, maybe we won't. That was not the founders' views. The founders clearly embraced, for instance, a view of religious liberty that would protect Jews, Catholics, all stripes of Protestants, and then eventually um, Muslims and Sikhs and, and other people of other faiths. That's definitely a part of the constitutional order that the founders um, created for us. So to start with some of the typical arguments that people as wide ranging as, as secular professors today to, to Christopher Hitchens would make, uh, what do you, how do you respond to the idea that the majority of the founders like George Washington and Thomas Jefferson were deist and therefore it could not be considered a Christian founding because, you know, Thomas Jefferson infamously snipped passages of the Bible uh, out of his personal copy? You know, it's a horrible argument, but it's one you see all the time. Academic after academic has claimed most of America's founders were deists. Many of America's founders were deists. If we define deism in a sort of classic way, a creator God who creates the universe and and it steps away from it and doesn't intervene in the affairs of men and nations, by my reckoning, there's maybe just one or two deists in the founding era, Thomas, Thomas Paine and Ethan Allen. So even someone like a Jefferson, certainly a Madison, and all the time a Washington and Adams um, speaks about God intervening in human affairs. Right. Right. Now that doesn't mean they're Orthodox Christians. We know for sure that Thomas Jefferson was a heretic. Um, John Adams was a heretic. So they aren't all Orthodox Christians. And yet evidence of heresy in the founding era is pretty thin as well. I can maybe point to four or five founders that were clearly not Orthodox Christians. Otherwise, we have a good deal of reason to believe that most of them were, in fact, Orthodox Christians, or we simply lack 
documents that allow us to make solid claims on either side. So taking a look at, at America as we as we approach the founding, uh, to what extent would, say, George Whitfield, the revival preacher, or Jonathan Edwards, the great theologian, to what extent uh, did what um, they were working on, their revivals, to what extent did that influence the founding, or maybe not at all? Yeah, there have been some very good scholars that have argued that the, the First Great Awakening, these series of revivals in 1740s, 1750s, sort of opened the door for the War for American Independence. It certainly broke down lots of pre-existing hierarchies, I think, in, in empowered regular people. And so it, it, I think it definitely contributed to the War for American Independence. But as I argue in this book, and far more in my book on Roger Sherman and the creation of the American Republic, I think it's very significant that 50 to 75% of the founders are reasonably classified as Calvinists, that is followers of John Calvin, the Reformed tradition. And within this tradition, you have a very, very robust um, resistance ideology that developed early on from Calvin, but then Knox and Ponet and others. And so, so many of the patriots had been reared within this tradition that when, when Parliament and then the king started infringing upon colonial rights, both natural and constitutional rights, they had the tools available to resist this sort of tyranny. And they, they took their time doing it from the Stamp Act Congress in 1765. It was 11 years until they ended up declaring independence. Uh, but coming out of the reform tradition, I, I think, explains a lot about why the American colonies resisted Parliament and the King and why so many other colonies. So Britain had a ton of colonies around the globe, right? Mm -hmm. Many of them just acquiesced. And I think it's this reformed heritage that explains so much of why the Patriots did what they did. Now, it's interesting. I find that in the, in the current discussion uh, and the sort of the iconoclastic fervor that's gripping the United States at the moment, very little attention has been paid to some of those founders. And I think that's primarily because they, they're, they're ignorant of the history. Uh, I, I'd like to think that they would probably go after those statues as well if they realized the influence those people had actually had. What... How well known do you think the thesis you lay out in your book actually is? Because although I, I've read generic defenses of America as being as being a Christian nation or having been founded at least by Christians, there's not a whole lot. There's not a lot uh, on America having a reformed foundation. But unless you're talking about Plymouth Rock, of course. Um, and there's far more people claiming, like, the, our view of the founding is very much the idea that we were a, a variation on the French Revolution rather than something that came out of a far more explicitly Christian background. You know, one of the problems with so much of the scholarship, and of course there's plenty of academics that would appreciate what I'm arguing and would agree with me, uh, Daniel Dreisbach of American University, uh, Barry Allen Chain of Colgate, uh, Jeffrey Morrison of Christian Newport, and I could go on. Um, so it says, you know, not just some sort of weird, obscure idea that no one's ever heard of. Mm -hmm. One of the problems, though, is so much scholarship just looks at a handful of founders, usually the four who became president. Right. So Washington, Adams, Jefferson, Madison, Ben Franklin and Alexander Hamilton, especially with the musical Alexander <laughs> Hamilton. Right. Well, the one problem with that is all of those founders, with one exception, are Anglicans. That is members of the Church of England. Um, that's about 15% of the American population at the time, and yet almost all of our sample is Anglican. John Adams is the only outlier there. Um, as well, they tend to be Southern 
plantation owners and slave owners. Right. And so this is just a very unrepresentative sample. So let me um, suggest one of the nice things you, you see when you turn your eyes from these very important men, I'm not trying to downplay their importance, but when you look at the broader gener generation of founders, and when we take into account these Calvinists, one of the things we see is a lot of founders who hated slavery, a lot of founders who eliminated slavery. Every New England state abolished slavery by 1800. Most of the mid-Atlantic colonies did as well. So something like eight states voluntarily abolished slavery. And yet the story is never told because we're always focusing on George Washington, the slave owner, James Madison, the slave owner. And of course, slavery takes root and um, takes a bloody civil war to eliminate in the American South. Um, but I do think, you know, when, when we can look at this broader generation of founders, we see a, a very different picture of their core values and commitments. So this is a question I really wanted to get into because one of one of the reasons we see this sort of iconoclastic fervor unfolding is this idea that by purging and smashing these statues, we're somehow striking a blow against America's original sin of slavery. And look, history is messy and complicated and bloody. And as you just highlighted, some of the most prominent founders were slave owners. But there's always conscious choices being made in terms of which history to focus on to begin with. So we can focus on the founders who owned slaves or we can focus on those who fought slavery. And it's interesting, I find that the founders who owned slaves are actually being elevated by those who seek to define America in a certain way. Why is it, from your perspective, that we're not paying attention to the many founders who hated slavery, would agree that slavery was America's original sin, and took steps in their personal lives to combat it? You know, I think in many respects, um, the founders that we tend to focus on are some of the most important, the ones that became president, obviously, and in the American system, the president has a spotlight shined on him. Um, I, I should note that I think all of these founders were troubled by slavery. Um, right. Jefferson, for instance, talked about slavery as being similar to holding a wolf by its ears. You really don't want it. And yet, what do you do? Do you let it go? If you let it go, it will attack you. And so it's not really until the 1830s that really any American starts defending slavery as a positive good. With respect to the memorials, I, I, I think memorials, I, I, we obviously shouldn't erase history. We should understand our history. But public statues are things that we decide as a community to celebrate publicly. And so I think it's worthy to, worthwhile to have a conversation about some of these. I, mm -hmm. I'm pretty open to the argument that some of these statues to Confederate generals put up in the late 19th century, maybe they should be put in a museum instead. Right. On the other hand, with someone like a Washington, a Jefferson, you know, we can, a Madison, we can look at these folks and say, yeah, they were not perfect, but they contributed a great deal to America's constitutional order. And so there's still enough that we should celebrate publicly with respect to these great founders, even as we make it clear that they were not perfect, that they did own slaves. Washington, of course, freed his slaves in his will, which is something that is certainly laudable. Um, but yeah, this is, this is a discussion that we certainly should be having, but this idea of mobs pulling down statues, I, I, I think it's despicable and it ought to be rejected we should have a civil discussion about these matters um, and not act violently. Well, the, the, the irony uh, of 
I think one of the things that's made it really clear about how difficult a historical purge would be to begin with was the irony of the Washington Post discussing how Washington might need to be purged, seemingly unaware of the fact that they're named the Washington Post and therefore also named after George Washington. Like, the fact that the article was published under the byline Washington Post was a clear piece of evidence of how impossible it is to to purge ourselves uh, of these people who, like it or not, did found the American Republic. And one of the things that I've, I found very interesting in, in your work is when you're defending a, a, a certain perception of the American founding, it now butts right up against the, the emerging idea of the American founding, the 1619 Project, the idea that slavery wasn't America's, just America's original sin, which I assume any reasonable person would admit, but that it defined America as a whole, that it was something that America was built to defend in the first place. So when you look at the founding in, in, in your research, what percentage of the founders would you say were supportive of slavery? And then how would you characterize the, the American founding in opposition to how the founders of the, the 1619 Project are doing so? Yeah, the problem with the 1619 Project is just way too much overreach, Right. Right. Um, let me just throw out a, a kind of fun statistic. It, it's sad. It, it's a devastating statistic, but it's interesting to know. Of the 13 million or so Africans stolen from Africa and brought to the New World, only 5% of them went to British North America. The other 95% went to the Caribbean or the South. And, and I bring that up not to justify it, obviously, mm-hmm. but to say this isn't something that the um, British settlers in, in, in America were doing on their own, right? This is a worldwide problem. What I think is most interesting is that it's Christianity that provides us resources to challenge us. So you have Quaker abolitionists in the mid-18th century. Um, this picks up steam as we head towards the late 18th century. As I already mentioned, eight states voluntarily abolished slavery in the late 18th, very early 19th century. The abolitionist movement of the 19th century is almost solely a Christian movement. People fighting for the, to, to free the slaves. Um, after the bloody Civil War and the 13th Amendment, we have this horrible system of Jim Crow legislation. Who challenged that? The Reverend Martin Luther King Jr., the Reverend Ralph Abernathy, mm-hmm. the Reverend Jesse Jackson. It is Christians who have taken the lead in challenging slavery and challenging Jim Crow legislation. And, and so I think we need to celebrate this legacy. We need to, as a nation, uh, moan the sin of slavery. And I do think it was a national sin. And so we mm-hmm. should recognize it. Uh, but it certainly is not the defining feature of of America. It's just way too much overreach to claim that it is. Well, a, a national sin. If if any anybody who's read Lincoln's second inaugural address, which in my in my personal opinion is the greatest uh, political sermon ever preached, he he lays out the fact that the only way you can understand the American Civil War in the context of Christianity is punishment for a national sin being levied by a just God for the crimes perpetrated against the slaves. You know, that, that's exactly right. It is a wonderful, um, wonderful address. And he recognizes, I, I think people with roots in the North tend to think of slavery as a Southern sin, but the North was complicit. The North had slaves at one point and then merchants and others um, continued to benefit from slavery in the South. So we have to recognize that we as a nation sin against African-Americans. And you can certainly view the Civil War as a punishment for national sin. This sort of talk, it just seems strange, even in many Christian ears, because we tend to think of sin as an individual issue. But the Old Testament seems to be crystal clear that actually nations can sin, nations do sin, God rewards and punishes nations collectively. And in the mid-19th century, everyone would have understood 
what Lincoln was saying, even if some might have disagreed with them. Um, but like you, I think it's very um, theologically sophisticated and it could likely be right. Now, when we look at our sort of collective ignorance of history now, is I, it would be interesting to me to know how many Americans can list more than the, the, the couple of really prominent founders to begin with, or how many of them knew, for example, that Aaron Burr, um, who everybody knows about because of the musical, was actually the grandson of Jonathan Edwards, or if they would know who Jonathan Edwards was to begin with. But one of the difficulties is that because we don't understand the complexity and the nuances of our history, it's very easy for, for people uh, of goodwill to just go along with with the current statue smashing because who wants to defend a slave owner, uh, right? When somebody says that has to come down because they own slaves, a lot of good people will have an instinct of, yeah, well, if he owns slaves, why are we celebrating him now that we collectively recognize slavery to be a heinous crime? There's a, a picture going around Twitter right now that I'm sure you've seen that just, it's a picture of, of the founders and, and somebody circled all of the founders who did own slaves. And it is it is quite a devastating piece of, of rhetoric for the argument that the American founding was so poisoned by slavery that perhaps we have to accept the idea that it was rotten to the core. What would you say to those who, who, uh, who are wondering what to do, uh, who would like to defend the American founding, but at the same time are feeling very challenged by the cultural moment we're in to say, maybe I was wrong, maybe America was rotten to begin with, and maybe it's time to take all these statues down. How would you defend the American founding to somebody asking that question? Yeah, at least one thing I might point out. Um, first of all, in, in the picture, I presume, maybe of the Constitutional Convention. Yes. I, I'm not sure I've actually seen this. But, you know, we do have to make distinctions. So, for instance, James Wilson, the, the Scottish founder who immigrated to America, would have been circled. He owned one slave throughout his lifetime. That was basically a household servant in Philadelphia. And then he voluntarily freed his slave. And so I would suggest, you know, we want to look at, at the individual level. And I'm not even saying that was right. Obviously, it wasn't right. It, it wasn't right. But he kind of made a, an attempt to fix the wrong. And it's a world of difference from being a um, southern slave owner with a plantation full of slaves out right. in the hot sun. Um, from, from down to Which didn't really happen until the cotton gin was invented anyways. No, that, that's right. Um, John Dickinson, at one time, the, the largest slave owner in Delaware, he voluntarily freed all of his slaves. So I think we need to look person by person. Again, no one in the 18th century is defending slavery as a good thing. They all recognized it was problematic. The only question was, what do you do with it? The, this debate came up in the Federal Constitutional Convention, and there was a move to say, okay, maybe we should ban slavery. Some of the Southern delegates, though, without really defending slavery, they said, look, if the Constitution bans slavery, no Southern state will ratify it. No state um, south of what we now know as the Mason-Dixon line will ratify it. Well, now you have to think, okay, politics is the art of, of the possible. Maybe the Northern states should have just gone and done their own thing. That means the Southern states probably would have gone and done their own thing. Um, who would that have been better for? Would that have been better for the slaves? Probably not. One of the um, important events in the summer of 1787 is the delegates in Philadelphia learned that the Confederation Congress had passed a Northwest Ordinance that banned slavery in the federal territories that would become states, the states of Ohio, Michigan, Wisconsin, and others. And so they could kind of look towards the future and see a future where slavery was on the decline, freedom was on the increase. And so they made a calculation that having a constitution keeping 
the 13 original colonies together would have far more benefits, including benefits for enslaved people than just saying, okay, we'll go do our own thing. As well, the, um, you know, the, our constitutional order does a lot of good things, right? It has done a lot of good things. Um, and, I, and I think we need to celebrate this thing. So we need to honest, have an honest discussion about slavery. And, and yet we shouldn't throw the baby out with the bathwater. America has done many, many good things. Um, we've done some evil things. We need to recognize the latter, but we should celebrate the former. What are a handful of the, the things, especially it's in this renewed interest for history, um, where we seem to be getting a lot of things wrong, it's devoid of any nuance or discussion. Uh, nobody who did anything good is ever brought up, I notice. It's only the people who, who owned slaves that are brought up to begin with. What are some of the things that you see being gotten wrong consistently in these last couple of years in this cultural moment? Um, well, one, one thing, of course, that's near and dear to my heart is um, religious liberty. And I think to their credit, the founders created a system in which the religious liberty of all citizens would be robustly protected. One of my favorite documents, I, I quote it twice, is George Washington's letter to the Hebrew synagogue in Newport, Rhode Island, where he makes it crystal clear that Jews have the same ability to freely practice their faith in America as anyone else. Now, if you recall the statistics I threw at, at you in the very beginning, mm -hmm. there's only about 1,200 Jews in America. This is not a potent constituency that has to be cultivated. But Washington is making a principled statement. Everyone has the right to religious liberty. The Constitution bans religious tests for office. Um, in the late, into in, the 19th and the 20th century, I think religious liberty um, came to be valued by almost all Americans, by Democrats and Republicans, conservatives and liberals. A great example of this is the Religious Freedom Restoration Act of 1993, passed 97 to three in the Senate, overwhelmingly without objection in the House, and it was signed into law by the Democratic President Bill Clinton. Now, one of the things I think my progressive friends get very much wrong is in the 21st century, they've largely abandoned religious liberty, at least when it comes to yeah. um, conservatives, to bakers who refuse to bake a cake to celebrate a same-sex wedding ceremony, to a, um, owners of a business who don't want to pay for abortions and this sort of thing. Um, progressives tend to say the law is a law follow the law or go out of business. And I think this is just absolutely wrong. I think the founders, almost to a person, would object to this and say, no, religious liberty is a very important principle. We should accommodate it whenever possible. Of course, we won't accommodate everything. If you were to have an Aztec worshiper, sun worshiper who wants to sacrifice a human to the sun god, of course, we'll say no. Right. Um, the state has a very compelling interest in prohibiting that. But otherwise, people should be free to act according to their religious convictions. One of the interesting things I find about the difference between the debate we're having in 2020 and, and the debate we were having in 2010 is that progressives used to make the argument uh, that the American Constitution allowed for their agenda. And so you have, you know, um, a rejection of originalism, the claim that the living Constitution allowed the American Constitution uh, to evolve with the times. But I find increasingly in the pages of the Washington Post and the mainstream media a different argument being made. They used to say the American Constitution actually allows for our agenda. Now they're rejecting the American founding entirely, which is a, is a completely different tactic. Is that what you see as well? I see far too much of that. It, it, it's a, um, a malady that I think begins with the American progressives in the early 20th century. They're, they're the first 
people to ever really go after America's founders on natural rights and, and this sort of thing. Uh, but I think we see a new variation of it today. And, you know, we have to be careful not to make category mistakes, but I see this in freedom of religion. I see it in freedom of speech, right? Now, of course, it's one thing, the cancel culture is one thing, but there are those who want to use the power of the state to punish hate speech, for instance. Right. And hate speech um, can be defined as broadly as simply saying anything um, critical of, say, same-sex marriage or this sort of thing. Um, yeah, very, very problematic. And so I long for the days where I could have great conversation with my um, liberal friends that were classical liberals who understood the value of freedom of speech, private property, the free exercise of religion. Yeah, I, I see an element of Black Lives Matter, really a new sort of authoritarianism, a, a fascism that, that is scary. Now, there are plenty of people who might participate in a Black Lives Matter protest that are just simply concerned about racial injustice, and I mm -hmm. think more power to them. But I think there's elements in that movement that really are calling for something radically different, and that certainly would include a rejection of the American what would you say to the argument being made by uh, by some of the radical elements who say, look, um, you know, cr old white Christians ran America for years. The only reason you're calling for freedom of speech uh, now is because at this stage you need freedom of speech to speak out against us. That once that any group, once they achieve the ability to exert cultural dominance, rejects the freedom of speech their opponents need to protest their agenda. You know, I, I think those um, accusations are simply unfair. If, um, if I can um, just speak to religious liberty a little bit more, mm -hmm. some of these wonderful groups, the Beckett Fund for Religious Liberty, the Alliance Defending Freedom, First Liberty, the Christian Legal Society, they routinely protect religious minorities as well as Christians. So the ability of a Muslim inmate to grow a beard, the ability of a Muslim woman to, to wear the hijab, and so forth and so on. Um, I, I think as well with freedom of speech, you look to groups like the ACLU. Um, they are very principled, generally, in their protection of freedom of speech, including protecting speech that they hate. I think these are very important basic principles that are necessary if we're going to have a Republican form of government. And so I get very nervous when people start um, talking about using the power of the state, especially to shut down uh, disfavored speech. But I also get worried when it comes to, to corporations doing this. And so I think we do need to be very concerned about some of the um, actions of a Twitter or a Facebook, which is private businesses do have more freedom to choose what to allow and what not to allow. But still, as consumers, we can insist, look, you guys need to allow conservatives and people of faith to have a say. And if you don't, we'll move to other platforms. One of the, the things we've seen recently with the, the tearing down of the statues is a refusal to expand our historical understanding, to accept nuances, as we were just discussing. And one of the things I had suggested is instead of just tearing statues down, why don't we put more, more statues up? What, which one of the founders uh, that is virtually unknown now would you suggest erecting a statue of? Uh, somebody who we could look back at and collectively be proud of. Somebody who didn't own slaves. Somebody who was, who was seeking the American founding as a way of promoting uh, justice and brotherly love and Christian values. Thank you for that question. That gives me a chance to talk about Roger Sherman, probably my favorite founder. So Sherman is the only American to help craft and sign the Declarations and Resolves, the Declaration of Independence, the Articles of Confederation, the U.S. Constitution, and the Bill of Rights. Wow. Um, like Jefferson, he wrote a religious liberty statute 
for Connecticut, where, which was his home state. Unlike Jefferson, he co-authored a bill to ban slavery in Connecticut, and he never owned slaves. Um, Sherman was, was a major force in the Constitutional Convention. When he and Madison disagreed, he won more um, battles than he lost. And he, um, the only handwritten draft of the Bill of Rights we have is in his hand. Now, why don't we know Roger Sherman? Well, <laughs> for one thing, he didn't become president. He died fairly early in the New Republic, 1792. And he just wasn't as interesting. He's not as flashy as a Thomas Jefferson or Alexander Hamilton. But, and, you know, Jefferson and Hamilton are very, very important people, and we should study them, obviously. But we need to expand the, con the conversation to include people like Roger Sherman. Um, there is, incidentally, uh, each state is allowed two statutes, uh, statues in Congress, and one of Connecticut's two statues is to Sherman. And so that's there. If you go to the U.S. Capitol building, you can visit it. But certainly there's no major memorial like we have for Washington, a Jefferson, and Adams. Um, and maybe there should be. A lot of the founders, even those uh, who were not small, low, orthodox Christians, uh, they they still believed that without Christianity, the American experiment would fail. So there's, you know, the very famous quotes from, from John Adams saying that without Christianity, um, the people will go through the Constitution like a whale through a net. Um, there's Thomas Jefferson and, and George Washington attending church services that it's dubious they believed much of what they heard, things like that. What are your thoughts uh, looking at the current moment and sort of the fraying of our collective cultural heritage? How, how would you say we are going to survive this if secularization continues? Do you, do you agree with the founders that America has lost without a collective Christian moral fabric holding us together? Jim Hudson of the Library of Congress um, referred to what you're talking about as a founder syllogism, which simply goes like this. If you want to have a Republican form of government, you must have a moral people. And if you're going to have a moral people, you must have a Christian people. Now, sometimes the founders would say religious, but clearly in the context, they're talking about Christianity. Right. And so I think they would be very, very worried about the um, rise in the nuns, the N-O-N-E-S. That is, Americans who are not claimed to be atheists, but they're just kind of, you know, I'm vaguely spiritual. Moralistic therapeutic deism. Exactly. Yes, I do think America's founders would, have, would, would be worried. And so as Christians, I think one of the number one things we can do is pray for revival and share our faith. Um, but I do think, you know, just because the founders would have found it hard to imagine uh, a, a non-religious people governing itself doesn't mean it's impossible. Um, they created a system of government characterized by limited national power, separation of powers, checks and balances. So they aren't simply relying on a moral people. And um, we can look to countries today like Japan, which is very, um, mm -hmm. I think it's fair to say, not religious, right? To the extent to which it's religious, it's sort of a vague Buddhism or Confucianism. But even that's very vague. And most Japanese people, I, I believe, would identify themselves as not religious. And yet you have a, a pretty successful Republican government. Taiwan might be another example. Um, so I, I do think the founders were on to something. I do think they would be concerned if they were to see the, the, the turn away from Christianity in America today, but I don't think it's necessarily the case that we're doomed to failure. We might be able to muddle through in one way or the other. That's the argument Ross Duthit makes in his book, The Decadent Society, is that the system the founders created will allow for the gridlock that prevents us from tearing each other apart, basically. I think that's right. Yep. Uh, on a few specifics, because I know people always enjoy, uh, you know, hearing anecdotes. 
what kind what kind of stories can you tell us about about the the religious nature of the actual revolutionary army because in both your work and some of my own research i found that to be a, a very untold story there's an assumption that people there uh speak in christian terms even if they're not explicitly christian right like the atheist douglas murray said even in a, in a post-christian society we still dream christian dreams is the way he puts it what was the army of the american revolution like yeah, that's a great question. I'm not sure I, I can give you the sort of fine-grained detail that you're interested in. I, I, I will return to my claim about the importance of the Reformed clergy or the Reformed tradition, that is a Calvinist tradition or a Calvinist clergy. It is striking that the, the, the Reformed clergy were about 98% supportive of the War for American Independence. Almost oh, wow. none of them oh, wow. dissented from it, whereas among Anglican clergy, it was more like 50-50, which you might kind right. of expect, right. you know, members of the Church of England, yeah. right? Yeah. <laughs> um, so so they regularly preached in favor of the War for American Independence. I, I imagine, I'm not sure, but I imagine 50 to 75% of the troops were coming out of the Reformed tradition. Um, the other side noticed this, right? King George referred to the American... Uh, more for American independence is the Presbyterian Rebellion. And there's several other fun um, little quotes along those lines that I give in, in my book. Um, Horace Walpole probably had the best one that um, uh, Cousin America has run off with a Presbyterian parson. Yeah, no, exactly. Exactly right. You have, of course, chaplains in, in, the, um, in the Army when Congress wanted to put I think it was chaplains over the brigade level instead of the regimental le- level. Um, so you'd have one chaplain over a lot more people. George Washington objected. He said, no, 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 we, we ought not to have this. Washington encouraged his troops to attend church. Encouraged, not required, which I think is an important distinction, right? Mm-hmm. Um, you know, so there's a recognition that you should be free to worship God or not, according to the dictates of conscience. But certainly we want to make it, it possible for soldiers to worship God as they're far away from home. Um, this is incidentally something we've done from the very beginning. Um, con- the Continental Confederation Congress provided for chaplains. The first federal Congress provided for military chaplains, as well as congressional chaplains. Um, there's just been a recognition that faith is important. People should be able to continue to worship God when they're far from um, their home church. As a sort of a, a wrap-up question, what can the American founding teach us about the moment that we're in? Like, what can we use? There's a lot of people who dislike history because they think, okay, it's a lot of dry papers. And then, of course, now today, history serves as, as something that we can hate and we're united in our hatred of the past. What, what, what should we be learning from the American founding and how can the American founding light the way forward in a both historical and contemporary sense? Yeah, no, thank you for that question. So I've, I've written or edited a dozen academic books. This is my first book aimed at the general reading public. And my wife kept asking me, why does it matter? Why should we care? So I attempt to answer that question in this book. I point to a number of principles that I think the founders embraced. I've already spoken about religious liberty, which is under assault today. The dignity of life as well. Yeah. They were indisputably on record saying innocent human life from the womb to its natural end must be protected as a matter of law. Um, this is something we've obviously gone far too far away from today. I, I think the importance of limited government power, there's a tendency among people on the left and the right to say if something is a good idea, the national government ought to do that. Um, America's founders would have been very profoundly worried by that, that view. They saw the national government as one of very limited enumerated powers. 
other things should be done by, by the state governments or local governments, if they're to be done by governments at all, because we, the people, can hold these governments accountable in a way that we simply can't hold the government of Washington, D.C. accountable. So limited national government power, the protection of innocent human life, and religious liberty are three um, takeaways, I, I think. And then I talk about different ways in which, obviously, participating in the political sphere, but also by considering um, donating to some of these great groups like the Alliance Defending Freedom, the Beckett Fund, First Liberty, and other religious mm -hmm. liberty advocacy groups. I want to pull on one thread before I let you go, because you've, you've, you've given me a slow pitch across the plate that's, that, that's irresistible. When you look at, at abortion in the context of the American founding, you said that the American founders were very clear that life should be protected from the womb to the tomb. How would you defend the idea to somebody who said the founders um, were, were in favor of liberty and therefore would have been pro-choice? How would you defend the idea that the American founders were pro-life? Yeah, well, I, I think abortion is more difficult in some people's mind because you do involve competing claims, a woman's right to control mm -hmm. her own body versus the, um, versus a, a baby, I want to say. And I think here you just have to weigh this. And I think any right-thinking person would say the protection of innocent human life has to trump a woman's right to control her own body. And we should recognize that there is a restriction being placed upon a person, right. um, and right. yet it's a justifiable sort of restriction. We deal with competing rights all the time, and we have to make difficult decisions. I think for the, the, the founders, it would just be a no-brainer. Well, Dr. Hall, thank you so much for coming on and having this conversation. I think your book is more important now than, than ever before. It sort of fits the cultural moment. Where can uh, our, our, our listeners and our viewers find it? You can go directly to Nelson Books and buy it from their website, or probably Amazon is a, is the best place because they have it at a discount. It's for something like $18 instead of the list price of $26. Thank you so much once again. Thank you, Jonathan. It's been my pleasure. That was my conversation with Mark David Hall. Thank you so much for joining us this week. If you enjoyed this conversation, you can subscribe to our YouTube channel, share it with friends, head over to lifesitenews.com and click on the podcast tab. You can find past shows and conversations just like this, both at lifesitenews.com and at the Van Maren Show on our YouTube channel there. It also airs on the lifesitenews.com YouTube channel. Thanks so much for joining us this week, and we do hope you'll join us again next week.